0: 18 plus.
2: Welcome to episode 20 of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by Ben Carsley, editor of BP Boston. Ben, how's it going, man?
1: It's going well. It's good to be uh, good to have both of us. Back in the greater New England area and watching the Red Sox once again.
2: Yes, uh, there was a hiatus. I'm sure all of you out there who are regular listeners noticed there was no uh, regularly scheduled podcast last week. That's partially because um, we were pretty much all abroad. Um, I was in Hawaii, Ben was in Germany, uh, all sorts of fun stuff going on. So if any of our Red Sox analysis tonight reflects that, uh, we have not been as keyed in as usual, but... Uh, I think the both of us have been scrambling to catch up on all the good stuff that happened. And uh, look at the standings. The Red Sox are currently tied for first place with the Toronto Blue Jays and uh, rattling off a whole bunch of wins on the road. So um, they were very productive while we were both gone.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I was struggling to follow along while I was in Germany. Uh, I was gone a week before you were, so that was uh, a little bit of a rough patch for them. I think they were 500 or maybe one game uh, below 500 while I was gone, but uh, you know there's something like six for eight since I've been back, something something like that. So it's been it's been pretty fun to watch.
2: Yeah, it's been pretty incredible, and a big reason for the success has really been how the Red Sox starting pitching has been performing over the last month or so, um, and really since the start of August, the rotation has pitched to a mid twos ERA, uh, averaging close to uh, six six and a third, a uh, little bit over that, I believe, uh, per start. Um, so they're not only going deep into games, but they're pitching very, very effectively. Uh, unfortunately, that is coupled with um, the bullpen. Uh, also not performing over that time span, the bullpen's been pitching to about a five and a half ERA in August. Um, so we're, we're getting a lot of good things, but um unfortunately that bullpen has been falling apart but it's been something they've been able to kind of manage around a little bit
1: yeah well like you said you know when you're uh when your starters are averaging six innings and sometimes going deeper than that uh it makes it makes it a lot easier especially with this offense that's still still averaging well over five runs a game you know when when you couple that with an era in the twos for the first six innings it's uh it's a recipe for success so uh it's. Uh, I didn't really see this type of success coming from the rotation and that I didn't think this many guys would click at once. You know, I, I I have some faith. I had faith in Price. I had some faith in Pomeranz, but I didn't necessarily think that they would both turn it around and Porcello would stay hot and Buckles would all of a sudden look like good Clay Buckles again and Eduardo Rodriguez would come back before he went out with the hamstring injury. He would be really good. And all of this is without Stephen Wright, who, you know, had been struggling but was – probably their best starter for the first three months of the season, so I guess none of these performances, with perhaps the exception of Buckles, is surprising in isolation, but it's surprising that enough of them have happened at one time to have this sort of extended run of success.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's been really strange and really awesome all at the same time. I think we should start off by talking about Buckles, though, because uh, right now, as we record this, he's five innings into the game against Tampa Bay right now, uh, only allowed one earned run seven strikeouts, so this is really now three starts in a row where he's been very, very effective. This could arguably be the best start of the season for him uh, if he does keep this up right now, but this comes at just such an ideal time for the Red Sox with uh, Eddie being down, uh, dealing with the hamstring issues, and then Wright dealing with some shoulder soreness, like you mentioned. Um, Really just an unbelievable, um, I guess... I don't even know how to describe it, just unbelievable that he's pitching this well uh, at a time where the Red Sox need him most, and amazing that Dombrowski, uh, you know, didn't trade him, and I think a lot of people out there were clamoring for him to be moved at the deadline.
1: Yeah, it's it's like the Red Sox keep throwing Hail Marys and connecting on them with buckles is like the best way I can put it at this point. Uh, you know, you, you always hope that if you use him for one start, he'll keep it together, but he has a pretty nice sustained run of success now and I don't blame the Red Sox from bumping him from the rotation if the other five arms are healthy but it certainly gives you the luxury of not rushing Ed and not rushing Steven Wright back
2: yeah and both of those guys are tentatively scheduled to return later this week I believe that uh Eddie um, pitched that three inning simulation game today um mm-hmm. which was supposed to um as uh Pete Abraham reported uh, mentally assure him that things were okay. So that that alone was a little bit of a strange uh, strange comment, I think, from from Pete Abraham, who who typically doesn't um, report things that you know aren't true. He's really good at what he does. So it was kind of strange, and it led me to think that maybe there's a little bit of friction going on between uh, Eddie and Farrell and the rest of the coaching staff as to how he's being handled and I know that he was out for a long time with the knee thing then with this I think a lot of people are starting to kind of question his toughness and there have been even people who have talked about uh, the game that uh, Henry Owens had pitched and said you know that loss is on Eddie because he should have been out there which I think is totally ridiculous Uh, if the guy's not feeling 100% from his track record it seems like he probably wouldn't have pitched all that well but what do you make of this whole scenario? Yeah, I think that's just
1: ridiculous. I mean, would you do you want a guy when he feels a good, good young pitcher like, like Eddie, who was in the midst of a really solid three or four start run after being absolutely terrible the last time he was in Boston? You know, he feels something is wrong with his leg. He feels his hamstring grab at him or tighten up. Do you want him going max exertion and risking blowing it out, or do you want him to do the smart thing and say, hey, I'm not sure about this, it feels like my hamstring might go, you know, I'd rather skip one start or maybe not even skip a start, but just get myself out of the game right now and protect myself in what, at the time, we thought is still sort of a pretty thin rotation. I don't put any credence into that, you know, I don't know what his knee injury was like, I don't know what he felt in his hamstring, uh, I'm not necessarily sure why mentally assured needs to have negative connotation to it. I understand why it might, but you know, this is a young kid for all we know, he could really still be learning how to pitch when he's not a hundred percent. And I would just, I would, unless it's game seven in a playoff series, I would always rather see guys like this, take it easy, pump the brakes and, you know, see if a few days of R&R can spare us from a DL stint. Because if he blows his hamstring out right now, he's done for the year. You know, he's not going to have enough time to sit for five, for four or five weeks, rehab it, come back. He's, he's just gone for the year. So I am uh, a big fan of him taking the the, the slow and cautious approach, and I, I would need to see more than what I've seen so far to be convinced that there's some friction between him and the front office.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on, on all this. Uh, I think there were just too many things that um – We're working in favor of him sitting. You know, uh, we talked about Buckholz's performance, uh, subbing in for right, being really good. Also, we have to remember that before Henry Owens uh, came up to pitch that game where he did get lit up, he started off that game really well. I was actually watching that start. Um, Had six strikeouts in the early going. Actually looked pretty good. Um, Wasn't allowing very many hits, but... uh, before that in the minor leagues in triple a he had been having a tremendous amount of success too so the idea of bringing him up there probably wasn't um you know all that scary um, to, to think about at that point obviously it didn't go well but he's a guy who's been pitching much better as of late and the front office probably didn't feel all that bad about throwing him into that situation
1: no i i uh i think that that all makes sense and you know even if even if the alternatives aren't great, you, you, you can't ask the guy to go out there and pitch if he thinks that he's hurt or that pitching is going to make him hurt. So, I just I just don't understand it. You know, we've all seen players that uh, fans love. You know, guys like Pedroya and I'm sure some other examples will come to mind. Guys who go all out, but you know, to the extent where you almost wish they would pull it back a little bit so they could stay on the field. That's all Eddie was doing here
2: yeah absolutely and, and you're right it's so much more important to have them correct for the stretch run but it does really highlight um the depth issues that the red Sox still do have because outside of clay buckles here um henry owens was the best that they could throw at the situation uh, you could argue that brian johnson might be in line to get a start like that if for whatever reason uh, eddie or Wright can't continue to uh progress in their rehab but um you know, Outside of those guys, there is still a pretty scary lack of depth in the Red Sox pitching.
1: Yeah, I, I want to give the Red Sox a little bit of a break because there aren't a lot of teams, even playoff teams, that can run you know seven or eight starters deep. Uh, it's hard enough to field five, let alone six reasonable starting options at the same time. I do think that if anything else happens, Brian Johnson should be the next pitcher to get the call. Uh, you know, Ed, uh, Henry Owens can't make another start in the majors this year. I know he had been doing a little bit better at Triple A lately, but he just—he doesn't have the command requisite to succeed in the major leagues at this time. And even though he missed plenty of bats in his first few innings in Detroit, and that is a start that I was able to, uh, unfortunately, see all of. Uh, and you know, <laughs> he does—he does have swing and miss stuff. He does still have some deception, but the command and control just—they—they they go far too often. You know, he's a low low 90s high 80s thrower he's going to get hit sometimes and when he does get hit there needs to not be a lot of runners on base and he just he, he can't compete at the major league level right now I, I don't think that's a death sentence for him in the long run I would like to see him you know come back you know, try something new next year something that limits the walks without taking away from the quality of his stuff but um, I would much rather see Brian Johnson get a shot if the Red Sox do end up needing to go to a 7 starter than throw Owens out there one more time
2: Yeah, I'm with you there. At least Brian Johnson doesn't hurt himself. He's certainly a guy that minimizes the walks. He probably won't have any sort of a dominant pitching line, but he seems to be the type of guy that could uh, keep you in a major league game a little bit longer. Um, As far as Owens goes, what do you think about Owens as a possible late-year addition to the roster uh, to fill in as a bullpen piece?
1: Well, I don't necessarily think he's the type of – player who would thrive in a bullpen role because his command is an issue and because I don't see him gaining a ton of velocity if he moves to a single inning role. Uh, I I certainly don't mind if he's added to the roster as part of September call ups because, Mm -hmm. you know, what else is he going to do? You could use him as a long man if you're really far ahead or really far behind. Uh, If something does happen and you really need a scratch starter, then okay, that's fine. But he doesn't strike me as the type of pitcher with a profile who's going to take a big jump forward if he's a reliever. Uh, I think maybe if after 2017 he hasn't made any headway in the rotation in AAA or the majors, you know why not see if there's something that's going to click when he goes? But yeah, I don't think this is Andrew Miller where you know, you're know you going to go from throwing 93 or 94 in the rotation to 98 in the bullpen. I think you're looking at a guy who maybe could do 92 in single-inning stance, but that's still not that impressive even coming from the left side. So. Um, if we get to that point, you know, he might have his most value as a tertiary trade ship going to some team in the NL who thinks they can they can use him in the back of their rotation.
2: So if if he's not going to be an option, let's look at this bullpen right now as it's currently constituted and do our best to try and fix it, um, see what we can do to, to make this bullpen more effective. Uh, there have been a lot of writers li- lately uh, in the Boston market writing on how... Um, they think that there should be more defined roles in the back of the bullpen. Uh, Clearly Craig Kimbrell is the closer hasn't been as dominant as Kimbrell in the past, but I think he's a lock for that role. Uh, But after him, how do you think the bullpen should be shaking out in terms of the eighth, seventh, sixth inning uh, and beyond? Because there've certainly been some guys like Fernando Abad and Janice Itazawa who have like six ERAs since, uh, since the July time period so they've been pretty terrible and pretty useless pieces. What do you think needs to be done there? And Ziegler has struggled as of late, Matt Barnes has been mostly good, Ross has been mostly good. But where do you see all these pieces fitting in for the team?
1: Yeah, it it's a fair question and, and you know this is a this is a BP podcast and I think um I think a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people who interact with us have been trained to discount the need for bullpen rolls, and to a certain extent, I agree. Until you just hear player after player after player say that it, it you know, it, it helps them know at what point they're coming into the game and what role they'll have. So even if it's not, you know, etched in stone like Ned Yost used to do, you know, the seventh inning belongs to Kelvin Herrera, come hell or high water. I don't think it needs to be that strict, but I do think having a little more definition, uh, you know, it could help these guys, and, and it certainly couldn't hurt. Given Farrell's. Uh, creative bullpen usage, uh, and the fact that a lot of relievers are struggling right now. So despite the fact that Ziegler hasn't looked super great as of yet, I would still consider him the primary setup man. You know, he has a long track record of success. I don't think I don't think the situation's going to get to him. I think this is more just a bump in the road than anything we have to be super worried about. I think at this point, Matt Barnes would be the primary seventh inning guy if you are looking for someone to do that. He certainly uh, is not perfect, he can lose his command, he can get taken deep, but he's shown the ability to throw multiple innings, and he's been better more often than he's been bad as of late. So he's certainly not your ideal option in the seventh, but I think that's what we're looking at. And then I think Robbie Ross becomes your you know lefty specialist and a guy who can pitch the sixth if you need to. Um, I don't think you can reasonably put Fernando Abad in a high leverage situation until he has four or five good outings in, in different situations. So I think those are your four primary relievers you are looking at headed into uh, – hopefully headed into the playoffs. Right. That doesn't instill a ton of confidence, but it's also um, – it's not embarrassing. You know, It's not like some of the early 2010s Tigers bullpens. There are at least a few viable options in there. And uh, after that, you know, Hembree could be used as sort of a righty-only guy. He really shouldn't be allowed to face lefties. But if you have a tough righty out, I don't really mind using him. Tozawa and, um, and Abad are the two guys I really want to see kept out of any sort of important situation moving forward. You know, I feel bad for Tozawa, but he, just, he doesn't have it, and the Red Sox even let him in a low-leverage situation in the Owens game when they were down by a lot and he got knocked around once again. So you need to sort of just exclude those two and, I don't know, maybe pray that Koji comes back and is effective. I wouldn't hold my breath when it comes to that, but that would go a long way if, if he was able to do so.
2: Yeah, I, I think I have to agree with you on the order uh, of all those guys. I think Kimbrell, Ziegler, Barnes, uh, Ross, those are certainly the order of guys that I think should be out there. Uh, situationally, I agree with you. I think Hembry and Ross could be kind of interchangeable depending on matchups. I do like Hembry I think, more than a lot of people. Um, like you said, he's a complete righty killer, uh, and that's invaluable to have on this team Tazawa and Abad, though, I'm really starting to question whether or not they should even be in this bullpen at this point. Because um, if you look down at Pawtucket, obviously there's not a, a ton of really intriguing options down there. But Joe Kelly um, is somebody that I think has to be considered at this point for a replacement for Tazawa. He's um, you know, obviously healthy, throwing with elite velocity right now. He's been very effective down there. Um, the high heat has been reportedly very difficult for hitters to uh, touch. Um, I, I still think he's just a couple adjustments at the pro level away from being at least a more effective right-handed option than Tozawa is at this point. Because like you said, even in low leverage situations, Tozawa is just getting destroyed right now. I feel like... Every time you put him out, it's just to kind of mop up innings, and Joe Kelly can do that. But he also gives you the added uh, upside.
1: Yeah, I think if this was a few weeks ago, I would be more inclined to agree with you. You know, at this point, by the time the podcast comes out, we're going to be at seven or eight days until the rosters expand. So, I'm I'm okay with waiting until until you can call Kelly up, uh, and, and you know everything. It gets a little easier to manage these pieces. I I understand the argument that maybe in that time, you know, you'll have to rely on Tozawa when you don't want to, but given how good the rotation has been and given that there are four or five reasonable options ahead of Tozawa, you know, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, I also am really low on Joe Kelly. I just don't. I, I get it. I know you're, we're always going to fall in love with the velocity and the potential is always going to be there, but Joe Kelly has not been good at anything since he's been a Red Sox other than one, like, seven-game stretch. So... If you if you prefer him to Tazawa, that's fine. But I don't think he's such an obvious choice that you need to cut Tazawa to make room for him.
2: Well, that's fair. I mean, at least based on performance uh, so far, that's fair. So, right, and uh, it's
1: it's eight days, right? So
2: yeah, it's right worth
1: up. worth keeping Tazawa to see if you know if something clicks, a mechanical adjustment is made. If he takes another ten days off and comes back, however unlikely that is, I don't think it's that much more unlikely than Joe Kelly being really good is unlikely.
2: So, what's your your theory on why Abad has been so ineffective? Um, he was clearly acquired at the deadline as a piece to help get lefties out. Um, has come here and gotten really nobody out. Um, have you seen anything from him that uh, is striking? And any any reasons as to why you think he's not having the success that obviously Dombrowski envisioned that he'd have here?
1: You know, I don't. I didn't see him enough before the trade to really comment on any any market
2: differences. I have seen.
1: I don't think he was ever brought here to be a savior. You know, I think he was brought here to be a marginal upgrade over Tommy Lane. And obviously that that hasn't worked out. And clearly the Red Sox would have been better with Lane, however low that bar is. But (laughs) I think when you're talking with with talents that are that marginal, it can be tough to discern one thing that that takes them from decent to terrible, especially when it comes to relief pitchers. Um, So I, I don't think I have a terribly informed answer there. I just, God, I hope they stop using him. Uh, anytime the game is within like four runs, because I have absolutely no confidence he can get
2: anybody out. Well, you heard it here Tommy Lane, the one that got away. Seriously, you never know. <laughs> you never know what you have until so you let it go, right? That's right. We never knew how good it was to watch Tommy Lane walk people. Um, so I'm going to throw three names at you that have been floated around as potential uh, bullpen options for the Red Sox, one that would be a free agent acquisition. Uh, Two others that would be worked out as waiver trades. Um, So I'll go with the first and most obvious one that people have been talking about, and you can tell me whether or not you think that they would be a good fit for the Red Sox and whether or not they should explore this. Um, First one's Jonathan Papelbon, savior of the Red Sox for very, very many years. Oh,
1: God, it's tough. Uh, From a baseball perspective, I get it. Because I think he would be better than Tisawa or um, or Joe Kelly. I guess I could see him maybe even being a tick up over Heath Embry. He's just such a clown, <laughs> and I know that some of his teammates like him. I, I think he has. Uh, I think there's a worse perception of him in the media than there is in the clubhouse. But between the baggage and the fact that he really hasn't been very good this year, you know, I certainly don't think the Red Sox are are foolish should they elect not to sign him. Uh, But if they do add him on, I I get it, you know, it can't really hurt as long as you trust him not to do damage in the uh, clubhouse, and as long as we turn around and he's not choking out Mookie in 10 days.
2: Yeah, you know what, I'd like to see this move, and I I agree with you, he's obviously gone down the decline, and uh, I read some quotes from Mike Rizzo about why they released him, and even some quotes from Strasburg about how his stuff has declined, but... Uh, he's still a competitor, and there's a few guys on the team, you know, David Ortiz, Clay Buchholz, that have played with him and that know probably how to manage a, a Jonathan Papelbon, if that's even a thing, and it seems like it probably is. Uh, but, yeah, I, I totally think that he would be an upgrade over Tozawa at this point and uh, somebody that would probably really relish being back with his old club. So, um I, I am all for it. He, we we talk about how bad he's been this year, but he really just hasn't been like catastrophically bad. Four three seven ERA. He's still striking some people out. Um, he hasn't been Papelbon of old, but still certainly a piece that could help. And I love the fact that it only costs money to to get a guy like this.
1: Yep, yeah, definitely all all fair points.
2: Um, the other two guys I want to throw at you are Ryan Madsen um, and Joaquin Soria. So you can talk tackle Madsen first, uh, Soria second.
1: I Honestly, I can lump them in by just saying that, of course, it would make sense to acquire either one of them, but why do we think they would get all the way to the Red Sox in a, in a waiver deal? Um, am I missing something? Have they already cleared waivers? or?
2: No, they haven't. It's uh, – they would have to clear that hurdle, and then they would have to work out a deal with the team. And it would obviously cost something at that point. Uh, and I'm not sure how much better an option either of those guys would be than Papelbon at this point. I think they're, they might be marginally better pitchers, but when you look at the numbers overall, uh, they're not that different.
1: Yeah, I haven't taken a deep dive into the numbers. Um, I'm doing a little poking around right now. I mean... It would seem to me like Madsen has has clearly been better than Papelbon this year. I know the FIP isn't wonderful. Um, off the top of my head, I would probably rank them Soria, Madsen, and Papelbon. But when you factor in the cost to acquire, I certainly understanding certainly understand if you prefer Papelbon slightly. Uh, I just don't see either Madsen or Soria happening because the Red Sox are so far down the waiver priority list, basically, is, is why I sort of rule that out.
2: So if that's the case, and, and the, the option here really is, you know, stand pat with this unit, as we said. Maybe define those uh, ninth through sixth inning rolls a little bit more as we go forward. Um, would you like to see the Red Sox add Jonathan Papelbon if it just costs cash? Um,
1: yes, but only like sixty forty. yes. A
2: week, yes. Okay. That's, that's good enough for me. I think I'm a little bit more solid on it. I, I put it at like 80-20 um, for, for me. Um, so hopefully that happens. I think it would be good for the club um, and good for the bullpen going forward. So um, I, I can't believe that after all the talk all season long, you know, 19 episodes before this one about the rotation, we're sitting here August 23rd uh, talking about fifth through seventh arms in the bullpen being the uh, biggest issues on this club right now. Really just a, a good sign as to how things have gone so far this season.
1: Yeah, that's fair.
2: Um, so I wanted to talk about the Benintendi catch from yesterday uh, or two days ago as you're listening to this uh, podcast. Um, and I wanted to get from you just one adjective to describe the greatness of that play. Oh, arousing. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah, that was one of the most superb baseball catches I've seen in a long time.
1: And the hair was perfect, and he did the the perfect, like, you know, unfazed face after. He wasn't jumping for joy or anything. He was just like, yeah, it was a pretty good catch. It was uh, incredibly impressive all the way around.
2: So, what was the most impressive thing about it to you? Was it like how much ground he covered, or how he was able to track that ball, or. The, the gracefulness, I mean, what was it?
1: I mean, maybe the fact that he had just moved to left field, so he was seeing a different angle all game long, uh, and that was, you know, his first or second play in left field, and he was still able to do that and navigate a fairly short wall, but, you know, still, I think it was a five-foot wall, so I think the combination of, of a small man getting that type of lift and the fact that he was able to adjust so quickly.
2: Yeah, he uh, he absolutely lit Twitter on fire last night when that happened, so... That was one of the cooler moments of the entire season. But uh, I gotta say, Ben, it really sounds like uh, your your affections are, are shifting from Xander Bogarts to uh, to Ben and Dendi here.
1: Oh, not even close. Bogarts, uh, you know, when you're in a committed relationship like I am with Bogarts, uh, you know,
2: every once in a while
1: the eyes wander, but you always know who you're going home to. And Bogarts still has a very special place in my heart.
2: So you, even with the flow, there's no challenge there.
1: The eyes are wandering but uh you know <laughs> there's a difference between affection and
2: love there you go so yeah it's it's amazing though how good Ben Intendi's been here in the early going he's been a factor defensively and um, offensively as well i mean tonight he's just added to it uh, as as we stand in the game right now he's had two hits out of three at bats and currently batting 323 with a 366 obp and a 477 slugging percentage yeah well, and- so far
1: What's crazy is that, with the exception of one or two plays in the outfield, very, very early on, he's just never looked overmatched. You know, he hasn't looked overwhelmed. He hasn't seemed like this is too big for him. He has that sort of, uh, you know, unnatural calm that Betts and Bogarts have about them. And it's—I uh, uh, was not anticipating this type of success this season. You know, even a few months ago when we started this podcast and you were asking me, you know, will we see Benintendi in twenty-seven, in twenty-sixteen? I said, you know, maybe it was a September call-up, but not before that. And instead, he's turned into a, a very meaningful contributor in August.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's tough to not imagine the lineup with him in it every day. But um, with the arrival of Chris Young back, he uh, came back yesterday as well. Um, Chris Young's definitely going to hit against lefties. And uh, this can only be a good thing for the Red Sox outfield because what this allows them to do is exactly what they did yesterday yesterday uh, resting Jackie Bradley Jr., playing Andrew Benintendi in center field. Uh, now you essentially have three center fielders, uh, four if you count Chris Young, who did play some center field of his own uh, in his career. Um, so guys that are basically interchangeable defensively that you can run out there and keep all of these guys just fresh as daisy uh, down the stretch run. So uh, just a tremendous luxury for the team. Uh, and really cool to get all that depth back at this time where it's just so crucial uh, with all the road games that the Red Sox have to play.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, neither of them are superstars, but to be able to run out Chris Young and Aaron Hill against lefties, just, it just makes a tough lineup that much tougher for herself, Bob. So that's something we should really be looking forward to.
2: So let's talk about this outfield a little bit because it is really, really special. And, um, Yesterday, I couldn't help but thinking when I was watching the Red Sox play and after the Ben Attendee catch, I started thinking about some of the other best outfields around baseball, and I actually tweeted out, you know, um, is this a better outfield uh, defensively and offensively than the Pittsburgh Pirates outfield? And I think that that's the barometer that I think about, but there are also some other really good outfields in baseball. Miami Marlins come to mind as one. But I wanted to get your take on where this group ranks amongst uh, outfield royalty in baseball right now.
1: So, yeah, this is a really good question, and it's one I've thought a little bit about in the, in the hours leading up to this podcast. You know, in if you think of baseball as a keeper league or a dynasty league, in terms of long-term potential, uh, it ranks first or second. And I think the only other outfield that has potentially as much long-term potential as, is the Pirates, just because... Marte and Polanco are both still really young, and, and McCutcheon is still very, very good. Uh, you could also say the Ma- the Marlins for right now value, although I am personally not excited about Giancarlo Stanton's uh, track record when it comes to health.
2: Yeah, that's Long, fair.
1: Long term, I yeah, they've got to be top top three or four. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible if the Tigers get a real center fielder. You know, I think they could be in the mix because of J.D. Martinez and Justin Upton. Right. There are are lots of teams with two good outfielders, but, you know, if Benintendi is able to do what he's done this month over a full season, yes. You know, the biggest question is, can he do that? And then uh, another question that I'm not super worried about, but we should wait and see, is can Bradley repeat this performance, you know? Right. Um, Betts is the only one who is, uh, uh, I think, a, a very safe bet to be this caliber of player moving forward. So I think... Pirates, Red Sox, and Marlins is certainly that the correct upper echelon. I would probably take – oh, God. I'd probably go Pirates, Marlins, Red Sox for right now production, and I'd probably go Red Sox, Pirates, Marlins for long-term production.
2: Yeah, so when you start breaking it down, and those three groups are really close, and that's certainly the three that, uh, that I came down to as well, I think the Red Sox outfield may have fewer questions – long term, just because this group is going to be together for a significant period of time um, before anybody becomes a free agent. I believe that McCutcheon becomes a free agent in a year or two, um, so he's somebody who's a candidate to leave that outfield. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton can opt out of his deal as well. Uh, Marcelo Zuna we have seen play extremely well this year, uh, but he played extremely poorly last year. And defensively, I don't think that group in Miami can quite match what Boston um, and uh, Pittsburgh are able to do. So when you kind of group all those things together, it's hard not to look at Boston with the most affection out of that group.
1: Yeah, d- defensively, I agree with you. You know, I would argue that everything you said about Ozuna sort of applies to Bradley as well. So I think, sure. they're, to me, they're sort of very equivalent assets. Um but, yeah, I mean, if you want to factor in McCutcheon's impending free agency and Miami's relative defensive limitations, that's fine. I would just, you know, in the interest of fairness, say that we've only seen Ben for five weeks. We don't really know what he is yet. Uh, certainly very encouraging, and that's why I think, you know, like I said, the long-term prognosis is the best for this team. But, you know, before we start putting Ben in the Christian Yelich or uh, Gregory Polanco role, let's see a little bit more out of him first.
2: Yeah, you know what's crazy, though, is that as, as good as that outfield is, we could be talking about a Red Sox infield in a year's time. That includes Yohan Moncada, Xander Bogarts, Dustin Pedroia, and Hanley Ramirez as, as well, which is a pretty darn good infield as well.
1: Oh, I mean, if you want to start talking about overall offensive uh, you know, nuclei, I, I think the Red Sox, they have to be your top choice, right? I don't know. I don't know who else can really compete with them. Maybe the Astros?
2: Yeah. It's maybe
1: the only other team that comes to mind. But, you know, George Springer is a little older than people realize. Um, they do have Correa and Altuve and, and Bregman so, and Gurriel. So, yeah, we'll say the Astros are, are right up there as well. But it's uh, it's a pretty promising time to be a Red Sox fan.
2: You know, as bad yeah. as they are at developing pitching, they're that they're. much better at developing hitting. It is uh, pretty scary. They are the anti-Mets yes they are yeah it's pretty incredible so uh getting to a few of these good performances in the outfield and uh, really talking about one guy in particular Mookie Betts who's now shifted to uh the cleanup spot here batting behind Ortiz as of late and he's been very productive there uh, Mookie Betts finds himself with a 313 batting average uh believe 28 home runs on the season just had his 20th steal uh and he's right in the thick of the MVP race. And I think if the season were to end today, uh, he would be my pick for, uh, AL MVP of the league. And, um, the reason why I'd have him over a guy like trout is just simply because, um, you know, his team is going to be in playoff contention. Whereas trouts is not, um, trout, you could argue has a little bit of a better body of work this season. It's, it's still arguable at this point, but, um, you know how how legitimate is Mookie Betts' case for MVP, uh, and and you know what are what are the odds of him actually winning that award?
1: I I mean he'll certainly be a top five finisher I think. Um, I I would have Trout. I don't really love the quality of team argument because that's that's not up to these players. You know if you put. Right. If you swapped Mike Trout and Mookie Betts, the Red Sox and Angels would be in very similar positions. So it's not really an argument that I I particularly am fond of. So for me, it would still be Trout, but I think Betts is certainly in that conversation. And you know, we still have six weeks or so left of the season, and there is time for Betts to pull ahead of Trout. I think um, Altuve needs to be mentioned as well, but I mean, I think those are really the top. Really, the top three in the AL, I, I would have Betts ahead of Donaldson at this point. So it's 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 pretty incredible, but I think he has a a real shot because I know a lot of people do take uh, you know quality of team into consideration. And if you do that, uh, you know Trout is out and Betts is going to have an edge over Altuve. So I think there is a there is a real shot here. And I will say that after Ellsbury was robbed of the MVP in 2011. Uh, I'm totally fine with Betts getting an MVP that he maybe only sort of deserves.
2: Yeah, I mean Trout, Altuve, and Donaldson—at least by uh, F. uh, War—have been better players um, so far this season. Um, When when we are talking about this and and the the chances for these guys to actually come home with the hardware, though, you have to think how an old-school baseball writer would think, because those are the guys, unfortunately, that get the votes. And um, you know, I agree with you. Obviously, both of us BP guys. Don't put a whole lot of stock into how good the team is. It's really mostly about their performance on the field. But when you do put in all those other factors here, um, if Jose Altuve's team doesn't make the playoffs and it looks like they're not going to and Mike Trouts doesn't, all of a sudden you could be looking at a a pretty tight race between Donaldson and uh, Betts who are going to be battling it out for that spot. Uh, And and Donaldson is the reigning MVP. And I think there also is an element of fatigue, too, uh, amongst voters. I I know that this happened to Michael Jordan. uh, God knows how many times where um, voter fatigue just set in, even though he was having the best seasons and he didn't win the awards. Uh, Mike Trout should probably have a couple more of these awards as it is. But, um, you know, I I could see it almost becoming a race that uh, excludes Trout a little bit, just because of that factor and how bad his team is, and maybe leans more on Altuve, Donaldson, and Betts.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, if we're talking about what do I like,
2: <laughs> you know, what
1: what am I handicapping? Yeah, that's Betts has a decent shot. Um, that wouldn't surprise me at all, and I think the you know, that that Jordan-esque point is exactly right. And unfortunately, it's, it just keeps happening to Trout, right? Like you said, I think you should already have. Maybe two more MVP awards than he has, but between him being sort of a, a boring genius player yeah. and uh, the Angels never being good, I, <laughs> we're going to end up with Mike Trout's career is over, and we're going to say, like, how did this guy only win five MVPs? How did he not win, like, 14 of them?
2: Yeah, it, it does seem like he's going to get jobbed, and, uh, you know, every year the, it seems that Trout fulfills his potential. He's the anti-Harper. Um, you know, Harper can do it, and we saw him do it last year, but just doesn't seem to be able to put it together like this, and uh, Trout comes in every single year with that immense talent, and delivers on the field, and doesn't miss games, so uh, his steals have even kicked back a little bit this year, Uh, he's just having just a brilliant season so far, so probably deserves the award, but uh, Mookie has a incredible chance uh, to get it, but the other thing I wanted to talk about here is the AL Cy Young race and to be fair I hadn't even considered this as a possibility of mentioning uh, a Red Sox player's name for this award but David Price did it for us Uh, talking about um, Rick Porcello already having 17 wins he's currently 17 and 3 he's going to make 8 or 9 more starts uh, presumably if he's healthy for the remainder of the season and should be able to Get over twenty wins with how he's been pitching uh, in a pretty weak American League as far as pitching goes. It's crazy to say, but he really does have a shot at the Cy Young Award. I think. What do you think?
1: Um, I think he'll finish in the top ten. Okay. I think, and that is in incredible uh, based on what we. You know what we knew about him heading into the season, and what we sort of anticipated his performance would be like this year. But I don't. You know he hasn't really been better than Chris Sale, uh, Corey Kluber. By advanced metrics, he hasn't even better than David Rice. David, David Rice. David Price. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I think we can go a little overboard when we look at just advanced metrics. But he he would not be in my top three. I don't think. Um, I do think the fact that he has so many wins will help. I think the fact that he's, um, you know, by traditional stats, been the best pitcher on a good team will help. And I I do think he'll finish in the top ten. But I would be shocked if he won the Cy Young. You know, the Cy Young especially, I think more so than the MVP award. um, uh, Actually, maybe not more so than the MVP award. But it's another award that tends to go to players with sort of established excellence, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it takes a year or two of good performances for people to take you seriously. So it would be hard for me to see a one-hit wonder like Porcello surpassing you know, established aces like, like Sale and Kluber, and, and to a certain extent, even Verlander this year, who have a history of dominance and are also you know, deserving in their own rights.
2: Yeah, I agree on, on a lot of those points. Um, I think he will finish in the top 10, but I'm going to be even a little bit more bold here and say that... Again, putting my old-school baseball writers, you know, I have a vote in this whole thing, uh, cap on, I think that he's going to end up finishing third in the voting. I think that he's going to finish behind Sale, who wins it, Kluber, who comes in second, uh, and then it's going to be him because when you look at win totals, uh, the only guy that's really up with him right now is J.A. Happ, and they put a lot of stock into that, especially if you think the Red Sox are going to come away with the division. Uh, I think he might get the nod over Happ, Uh, I think some of his underlying numbers are, you know, right there with Hap. Maybe a little bit more impressive, even. Um, And guys like Quintana, Hamels, Fulmer, um, Carrasco, they're just not going to have the win totals, uh, I think, that uh, put them in that conversation. So uh, he could get a pretty good chunk of votes here, which is crazy.
1: Well... Uh, Want to put a bet on it? You say three, I say ten. Yeah. Uh, so if he finishes top five, I owe you a beer. If he finishes eight or lower, uh, you owe me a beer. And if he finishes between six and eight, Matt Collins owes us both a beer.
2: That's very fair. I think. Uh, well, here's the six to eight.
1: Oh yeah. Either way, we're gonna make that happen. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy to think though uh, he's just been so consistent and uh, such a such an asset to this team so far so that's been really cool um, let's talk minor leagues a little bit here before we uh, start wrapping things up I want to talk about uh, Bobby Dalbeck because uh, he's a recent draft pick for the Red Sox who's been really tearing it up uh, in the in the early going uh, he's been in the short league uh, for the the wall spinners. He's a third baseman that the Red Sox drafted in the fourth round uh, to Arizona. A pretty big guy, 6'4", 225, uh, currently hitting 386, uh, slashing uh, with an OBP of 426 and a 727 slugging percentage. You guys just been eliminating the ball uh, in 23 games over there. So I wanted to get your thoughts on him and that early performance and uh, you know, kind of where he fits in this system that has... Uh, a few decently intriguing options at third base coming up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see him, or at least read about him more before I go too in-depth into the profile. Um, as good as it is as he's putting up these numbers, you know, I will be the, I will be extremely boring sabermetric man in all caps, and just say, you know, A, small sample size, and B, he's uh, he's a, a fairly polished bat doing this at a very low level. Uh I think the broader point that the Red Sox are starting to, you know, restock the lower level of their minors is is very important and very good because, you know, the Red Sox are not going to have a top three farm system when next year's rankings come out, and that's fine. The point of rankings, you know, the point of a good farm system is not to win those rankings; it's to use the pieces to make your major league team better. And through the promotion of Benintendi and the trade of Espinosa to get Pomeranz, you know, the Red Sox have certainly done that. But we are going to see a little bit of a void in the back end of the system, especially since the Red Sox came under those international penalties. So if they can hit on a fourth round guy like Dahlbach, who uh, a lot of play a lot of scouts thought might be better as a pitcher than a hitter coming out, you know that's really hugely important because there is this undercurrent in the Red Sox system that needs to come up to speed quickly. And while you know Grom will go a long way toward helping that, they need more than just him. So it's a uh, it's a great sign, and you know we have to take it with a with a grain of salt because I believe once upon a time Michael Chavis did something similar when he was right out of school, and you, you never know how that's going to look. But uh, certainly so far so good.
2: Yeah, it's it's a very intriguing sample from him, and I'd definitely like to get up to Lowell as well to see to see him play. Maybe we'll have to make that happen together at some point, Ben.
1: I uh, that sounds lovely.
2: All right, so we'll, we'll be back with a scouting report eventually. But um, let's talk about Matt Collins' guy, Mauricio Dubon. Um, we have talked about him a whole lot on this show, but really just in passing. He's often talked about uh, when Red Sox fans bring him up as, you know, a potential throw-in for a trade or another guy up at Portland. And he's really played third fiddle to um, Benintendi and uh, Mankata this year uh, when he was at the same level as those guys. And that's fair. I mean, his talent is not what those guys are, but um, he's having a heck of a year in his own right. And so far, uh, over two levels this year, he's got a 315 average, 375 OBP, Uh, been a tremendous player, Uh, eight home runs or four home runs, uh, 28 stolen bases and plays some pretty good defense at shortstop. What do you see his role with this team going forward with Brock Holt and kind of that super utility role? How do you work a guy like this into the lineup and keep a guy like this around? Because uh, he's starting to flash as a guy who could be a regular for a lot of teams.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I. I'd like to see him do this again before I think he's a regular for a first division team. Mm-hmm. I do. I do agree that this year he's shown, you know, either second division starter or very good utility infielder potential. I mean, I think the good news is is we really don't have to worry about this yet. You know, he could. He could spend all of next season at Double A and still be very age appropriate for the level. Right. That probably won't happen. You know, I think the, the the smart money is on him is on him opening up at Portland and then getting promoted to Pawtucket at some point. But not something where the Red Sox have to force the issue. You know, if he was going to be ready in 2018, Brock Holt would be in his 30s by then. As much as I love Brock Holt and don't ever want to imagine a future without him. You know, he's not necessarily someone who would be blocking Dubon's progress at that point um, and I do still think he's someone who could be a very attractive secondary piece in a larger deal if it comes to that. Right. You know, he does have Marco Hernandez above him who I don't think has Dubon's upside but who, who I actually like and I think he would be a perfectly reasonable backup middle infielder on a, on a contending team uh, I do think Dubon has probably already surpassed Devin Marrero in the organization's long term plans and if he hasn't I would, I would argue that he should pretty soon. So I think I'm just in wait-and-see mode with him. Uh, let's see how he does a, with a full year of competition in the in the upper minors. Let's see him take a few more walks, get the strikeout rate down to closer to where it was in, uh, in low A and high A. But certainly every reason to be very, very encouraged by him. And uh, I would probably have him as the sixth best prospect in the system,
2: maybe the fifth best. Yeah, and that's something that we wouldn't have said preseason. He's just had a tremendous year and really raised his stock quite a bit. It's uh, It really is amazing how much depth the Red Sox do have at, at this position as well. And you mentioned Marco Hernandez. I think either Dubon or Hernandez would be able to fill into that Brock Holt role uh, and do a good job. I mean, God forbid Brock Holt continues to deal with concussion issues. There really is uh, a few good internal options for for that role so and and that's very valuable you don't want to have to go out and spend team assets guys like Bobby Dahlbeck you know lower minors guys with a lot of potential to acquire guys like this and the Red Sox seem like they've been able to consistently produce uh, utility guys
1: yeah and you know the thing is you you always need more than one of these guys right because let's let's say it's 2018 Brock Holt is still your primary utility player Well, as soon as anybody gets hurt, Brock Holt is then an everyday player, which means you need a utility player. So then Dubon is going to be up anyway. So it's always good to go two or three deep when it comes to these guys. And, uh, you know, if the Red Sox don't end up including Dubon in a package, I am sure he'll find a way to contribute positively to the major league
2: team. Absolutely. Well, the last minor leaguer that we'll talk about uh, is a guy that there is clearly uh, going to be an organizational need for, and uh, the, the fit is evident already. Uh, Michael Kopech, uh, pitching with the Salem Red Sox at high A right now, uh, has been just incredibly dominant so far. Uh, 142 ERA, uh, about a million strikeouts uh, per inning. He's got 71 strikeouts over 44 innings. It's stupid. Um, People are batting about 158 against him. Uh, He's been just incredibly dominant. And this is a guy that the Red Sox um, prospect evaluators – talked about as a potential high leverage reliever a guy that reportedly hit 105 on the gun who is doing this as a starting pitcher right now um talk to me about how valuable this michael kopech is uh, this version of kopech kopech the starter and whether or not you think this can work Sorry, Kevin Kiermaier just got thrown out in the bottom
1: of the eighth, trying to extend a triple in a one-run game. So I am uh, I'm I'm very excited.
2: I thought you were just excited about Kopech for a second. <laughs> Kopech, the starter. We can give it for both. Uh, I can <laughs> say yes to both. Yeah. Uh,
1: Kopech as a starter, I don't want to go crazy on. You know, I I trust people who have seen him more than I uh, more than I have because I haven't seen him at all. Who have some questions there, and you know he is walking quite a few batters at high A. But you have to be super impressed with the overall package so far this year. And, you know, he's, because of stupid things he's done, he's missed a lot of professional development time. But his performance, uh, you know, it wouldn't be entirely crazy for the Red Sox to start him in Portland next year. I think they'll probably start him in Salem and be fast to promote him if his first five or six starts are as good as they have been. But, you know, for a high school arm, even considering all the time he's missed, he's still sort of on the fast track. So definitely no reason to stop him from starting anytime in the next, what, two seasons, three seasons. Let him go, see if the command settles down, see if he can get a third pitch working consistently. If not, you know, he'll just be a better version of what we think Joe Kelly is right now because he can get up to 105 instead of just 99. Um, so either way, the future is bright. Uh, I would definitely give him... Every opportunity to start, especially given the trouble the Red Sox uh, have had developing starters and and you know how thin they are in terms of minor league starting talent.
2: You know, he reminds me a little bit of Noah Syndergaard in in their regard that he's a guy who really relies on two elite pitches, can throw super hard, huge body. Um, Syndergaard had better control at this age than he did, but Kopech is arguably more dominant at lower levels than Syndergaard ever was. And I think the talent is there, at least, where you could be talking about if things break correctly for him and he does get some of those things that you mentioned under control, you could be talking about a potential front-of-the-rotation guy. Uh, You know,
1: potential. But (laughs) most guys with this profile don't become Syndergaard. That's why Syndergaard is so special. Uh, Syndergaard is also considerably bigger than Kovac. He's three or four inches taller and a lot broader. And I know Kopech is younger and he has time to fill out, but uh, I don't know. I don't think I'm with you on that comp, but I would <laughs> I would love to be wrong, and I'm frequently wrong. So,
2: Yeah, I would love if you were wrong too, but you're probably not. Uh, but Kopech does have good flow in his own right, and a pretty interesting last name, Michael Talbert Kopech. You don't hear that one very often.
1: Talbert, wow. Talbert. Is, uh, I understand why he just goes by Michael
2: Kopech. Yeah, that's that's a mouthful right there. So Red Sox uh, schedule coming up the uh, rest of this week uh, after tonight's start of Buckholz versus Archer, which uh, is currently going swimmingly right now for Buchholz. Uh He finished the, the outing with 6.1 innings pitched, one earned run, and nine strikeouts. Uh, and the Red Sox do cling to that 2-1 to re- lead here in the eighth as we record this. So uh, that is just awesome. Hopefully they can hang on to that. Um, tomorrow we have Porcello versus Andresi. Then Pomerantz versus Odorizzi in the uh, series finale there down in Tampa, and then the Red Sox come back up to Fenway uh, finally, um, and have Eddie versus uh, Kennedy if Eddie is able to go. Price versus Ventura and uh, Buckholz versus Dylan G. Uh, I will be at that Buckholz start on Sunday with uh, two of my uh, two of my uh, younger brothers for Sunday night baseball. So uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully that's a good game.
1: Yeah, very nice. Uh, I mean, I think it's a pretty promising stretch You know, the Rays are are bad And uh, Porcello versus Andrizi Would definitely seem to favor the Red Sox Pomeranz versus Odorizzi Is probably fairly even But with a slight edge to Pomeranz And then um, the Royals series Eddie versus Kennedy We'll call that a push Price versus Ventura You gotta like Price And Buckles versus G I, I can't believe I'm saying it But I think I would give the edge to Buckles Because he's been good lately so, um, you know, you look at these upcoming five games and it's it's very reasonable to expect the Red Sox to go three and five and hope they can go four and five,
2: yeah, I think you're you're right about that and if they can they can do that if they can actually deliver on that uh and those expectations um that'll do wonders for their potential to uh take this division down, because what they've been able to do here on the road has been incredibly impressive, and they've flashed a resiliency that I don't think uh, any of us who follow the team very closely really knew they had. Uh, This last week or so stretch has been uh, maybe the most telling stretch of the entire season, in my opinion.
1: You know, it's been really impressive, and and I would, uh, even more so than the Kansas City series, I would love to see them really just Crush the Rays here. Just take care of business against a bad team, a team that's haunted them in the past. You know that would go a long way. They they could end up finishing this road trip, what 11 and 14, something like that. Uh, certainly far better than we thought they were they would uh, they would finish it, especially given all of the travel. So things are definitely looking up. Um, you know, hopefully the Red Sox are able to hang on to this game. They do have Kimbrel up right now. And, uh, you know, everything favors them for the most part in the next two games. So even if they can just take one out of the next two and, you know, finish going three out of four in Tampa, it would be uh, one of the more successful long road trips in recent Red Sox memory.
2: Yep. It would be, it would be awesome. So take care of business, boys. Um, to close out the show, uh, you can follow us on iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe to our show there. You can also rate and review us. Uh, you can follow us uh, on Stitcher and subscribe to us there as well. Um, you can follow uh, Ben on Twitter, at Ben Carsley. And you can follow me, your host, uh, Jake Devereaux, at at Dev Jake uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, and we will be back with you next week, regularly scheduled, on the normal day uh, as well. Um, so look for that. and. Uh, Yeah, we're back to normal for the stretch run. So uh, tune in, guys. And as always, you can uh, send in questions as well. Uh, We do have a little question box that was added via Google Sheets uh, on the Red Seat podcast uh, on BP Boston homepage. So just click on any podcast and you'll be able to submit a question that way as well. So, uh, Ben, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great conversation as usual and uh, some really insightful thoughts about the Sox
1: good to be back and uh i'll talk to you in about a month
2: all right sounds good